as I said when we started this series four weeks ago, the Deuteronomy is going to be very challenging for me because I've never done it before. It's been even more so in terms of as I've looked at what it really says. And as we've been doing this series, one of the things that struck me is how applicable everything we've looked at is to modern life and that society would do well, actually do well, to structure itself around the provisions and laws God gave Moses here in the universe. Now, admittedly, some of those provisions seem harsh, but that's because the protective nature of those statutes is a picture of God's desire to protect his people from the wicked influences of the surrounding cultures as they establish themselves in the land that he's given them. And that same sense of protection is no less important now as we live in a world that often actively denies God's very existence, let alone is willing to acknowledge his sovereignty. And at the same time, and in an attempt to be a little more introspective, as I was looking at it this week, I realized Deuteronomy upsets our worldview and it upsets what I'll call the social apple cart because the more you look at it, the more confused you get because it's simultaneously very conservative on one hand and traditional law, at the same time you look at other things that seem, make it seem very progressive and modern. Which is what we saw last Sunday as we compared the more lenient biblical laws regarding manslaughter with modern laws that demanded significantly harsher punishments. That same dichotomy is also very visible in this chapter as God sets out the functional parameters for civil society as well as how we care for the disadvantaged and the vulnerable. So as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, there are four key things I think we're supposed to see and then live out as a society and especially as a community of faith. First is the sanctity and security of marriage. Next is the establishment of a fair, just, and caring community. The third is having a fair, just, and equitable financial and economic system. And the last is our responsibility toward family and community. So let's look at each of those and see what we're supposed to learn. Although most of us would have what I'll call a high view of marriage, a large part of the world around us doesn't share that view and sees divorce as a readily available remedy to their relational and marital difficulties. As an example, the tabloids recently highlighted a celebrity marriage that lasted all of 12 days before the couple divorced. Although the scripture allows divorce, it was never meant as a remedy for the often self-oriented reasons behind it, which is exactly what the first four verses in chapter 24 are pointing out. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now, I could honestly do an entire sermon or set of sermons on that one passage. But that kind of specificity and understanding isn't what I'm aiming for today. 
What I want us to see are the broader and more foundational concepts that we miss because they're hidden in the background and they undergird everything that we just read. One of which, and it doesn't speak about it, is the requirement for a husband to fill a bill of divorcement that would actually withstand community as well as rabbinic review and then enable him to separate from his wife without having to pay her family back the dowry that they gave her when they got married. Another is clarifying the term indecency, which under rabbinic law could have been something as trivial as how the wife dresses versus something that's shameful or some sort of shameful public activity that brings both the husbands and the wives' extended families and clan into disrepute. Although together those might seem innocuous and unimportant, they need to be taken into consideration because they shape the intent behind this example that suggests suggest that the man in this story may be as much his fault as the woman, if not more so. Although subtle, the example that Moses is giving us suggests that something's amiss, especially since there's no real cause given for the divorce other than this unspecified indecency. And as I said, the, the definition for that's why I range Additionally, there's an unspoken and somewhat tragically casual nature to these relationships that's something akin to the ridiculously short celebrity marriage that I just mentioned. And it's that cheapened attitude toward marriage that's behind the stern admonition at the end of verse 4. An admonition that's meant to emphasize the permanent and covenant nature of marriage. The divorce isn't something that should be done in haste because of the hugely negative impact it has on both families and society. Another important factor hidden in the background is that divorce is simply an option and not a requirement in this case. But there's no mention of that. There's no mention of any attempt at reconciliation, and neither man exercised the kind of forgiveness and mercy God expected of his people, even in the Old Testament. So in essence, in essence, these verses were written to challenge the worldly notion at the time that relationships are transient temporary. In some cases, that notion hangs on today. And that people can be frivolously treated as commodities or accoutrements for our personal desires or our career goals. Which is why this set of verses acts as a subtle yet pointed and again stern warning against divorce. Well, it simultaneously challenges both the lack of mercy and forgiveness, as well as the legal shenanigans meant to undercut this woman's rights as part of the process. As much as anything, the provisions in, this, in the first four verses are meant to protect the institution of marriage, as well as the rest of society from the damage that's a sadly and painful part of divorce. Now that same theme of protecting the community and ensuring that society is fair, just, and caring is what's behind the second set of verses we're going to look at. If a man has recently married, he must not be set to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. In cases of defiling skin diseases, be very careful to do exactly as the Levitical priests instruct you. 
You must follow carefully what I have commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way as you came out of Egypt. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. One of the most important aspects weaving its way through this chapter, through Deuteronomy as a whole, is society's, and especially the church's, God-appointed duty to be fair, just, and caring. Everything about the, the verses I just read is people-oriented. And along with verses 10 through 15, they establish what I'll call as a social contract that provides an understanding of community life that's based on God's law as opposed to human self-interest. What's particularly important about that is that we have a requirement that society uphold human dignity while simultaneously instilling people with a sense of responsibility towards each other that stabilizes and protects the community as a whole. Which is why there are statutes as diverse as I read that cover the security of marriage and family life, the outdoor predatory loan practices. They protect society from contagious diseases and they put an end to the slave trade and kidnapping, as it's referred to. And unlike the law codes of the nations around them, none of Deuteronomy's provisions were power-based or designed to sustain control of society by a certain class of people. As such, there's an inherent equality in society meant to influence how people are governed, as well as how the financial and employment systems work, and that's what we're going to look at in the next set of verses. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak at sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. As I've mentioned, the previous set of verses along with the ones I just read establish a social contract based on God's law and frames our understanding of community life. They're also meant to challenge practices that are common and that humanity's historically used and seems to be attached to. And that's more evident in the way this passage completely upends the banking and loan business as we know it, and essentially makes it a non-profit enterprise. Just as importantly, these verses also outline significant employment and HR protections that require sensitivity and respect on the part of employers as a way of upholding the dignity of people and the dignity of their workers. Broadly speaking, this whole passage requires society to develop and support a financial and economic system that goes beyond alleviating hardship, and instead allows people, and particularly the underprivileged, to flourish rather than simply existing at the margins of society. Now, having said that, these verses aren't what some people are going to call a treatise debating socialism and capitalism. Instead, it's simply throwing down the gauntlet against self-interest 
The self-interest that governs the current system along with the final set of verses, and along with the final set of verses, they also serve as a stern warning of divine judgment if we neglect or abuse the poor. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Although this part of Deuteronomy is seldom quoted, it's one of the most, if not the most important passage concerning care of the poor. Because it literally reverberates with the sensitivity and concern that God has for the vulnerable and the underprivileged. But what's equally as important is that these are commands. Commands and not simply broad-minded tenets. This sort of generosity is supposed to be a reflection of society's connection to God as well as being an inviolate part of who we are as a people and especially as a church. That said, whatever social care systems implemented it isn't supposed to simply be a handout because that sort of charity eventually demeans and belittles people. Instead, whatever systems used is supposed to help recipients feel valuable enabling them to make a real contribution to community life. Now, admittedly, that sort of system is costly, but we're not given another option. And our willingness to be obedient and do this is evidence of our faith and whether or not we truly believe and trust God. As you think about this broad brush that I've painted today, one of the things that Deuteronomy makes clear is that stable societies and truly functional and caring communities don't just magically happen. They require citizens who are absolutely dependent on God as well as having a tenacious sense of commitment and obedience toward God's law. And those traits are especially necessary if the church is going to lead and set the example for the world in terms of being a community that's fair, just, and caring, as well as God-centered and Christ-dependent. But doing that also requires greater personal responsibility and a willingness to be accountable to one another, which is something our individualistic world tends to shun. At the same time, Achieving what God is asking of society means that both progressives and conservatives need to reframe how they think because neither of those worldviews truly uphold a biblical understanding of what society should look like. As we think about all this, the question we're faced with is whether or not our faith is strong enough to follow in Christ's footsteps as we undertake the task of presenting a picture of kingdom life while engaging the world with the redemptive message of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we're not a people, we're not the people we're supposed to be. And we desperately need your help as we reach out to the world around us. Which is why we ask that you send your Holy Spirit so that we look at the people and the needs of the world through your eyes and through the shadow of the cross. Fill our hearts with a Christ-like love that enables us to do the things you ask of us. 
But at the same time, ensuring that all we do points people to you into the redemption and salvation found only in Jesus Christ. In whose mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.